we've had so many discussions before this so i'm really looking forward to what you have to contribute today and when you did reach out to me you know i was wondering what it is that i can bring to this discussion but i guess we're going to find out over the next 30 minutes or so i've been in the industry as a licensed architect for now you know quite a while maybe almost three decades i started my career in canada with that program had i not been you know into that program i wouldn't have met you i wouldn't have understood how important BIM is. Welcome to the BIM Student Podcast. In this podcast, we talk to leaders, followers, innovators, and adopters from our AEC industry. Like a student, I ask questions that we all wanted to ask on our digital transformation journey, but never actually did. I explore concept, products, ideas, and future possibilities in digital transformation space. Each week, I meet with an amazing guest from the industry. I look forward to learn something new, share new experiences, thoughts, and opinions, and how to make BIM journey better for everybody across the board. In today's episode, I will be talking to Patrick Savedra. Patrick is a director responsible for planning, architecture designing, and renovation facilities at York University. Patrick will put a light on how BIM Savvy project owner can become a better participant in BIM implementation in a project life cycle. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. I'm really glad you took time. We've had so many discussions before this, so I'm really looking forward to what you have to contribute today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And when you did reach out to me, you know, I was wondering what it is that I can bring to this discussion, but I guess we're going to find out over the next 30 minutes or so. Oh, I am pretty sure you're going to blow away our mind <laughs> like you always do. There are some wisdom mantras I'm pretty sure I'm going to get today. So let's start with just a little bit of introduction. Sure. To who are you? What do you do? And what are we going to be talking about today? Sure. Um, so let's see if I can be brief. Uh, definitely, I've been in the industry as a licensed architect for now, you know, quite a while, maybe almost three decades. My current job is as director of planning design and engineering services at York University. It's where I really pushed the whole essence of digital technologies, starting, I think, back in 2010, when I joined the university a year after in 2009. Prior to that, in private practice in the United States and in Canada, I've done all sorts of projects of all scales, small to very large complex projects, including urban planning projects, uh, some projects throughout the, the U.S., of course, uh, Dubai, and a small uh, research project that I did in India, believe it or not. But it was conceptual at that time, and I don't know where that went. So I've done the gamut, full member of uh, the Ontario Association of Architects. I'm a fellow of the RAIC. I'm also licensed in the United States by the AIA. I've been teaching uh, foreign-trained architects in a post-professional program at Ryerson University now, believe it or not. I, I can't believe how time flies, but I think now this year could be the 10th year. And I'm in shock. And we're about to begin next week, actually, our 24th cohort, if I remember correctly. And they've contributed to the profession at large quite well. So I'm really excited to, to share and learn from uh, foreign trained architects myself. So I do that as part of my part time. And I sit in a couple of committees with the city of Toronto and the city of Mississauga on my spare time because I like to give back to the profession. 
so yes, uh, this is who I am. This is what I do. And time to time, I like to do a design competition to keep my my thinking and my visioning ideas, you know, kind of refreshed, you might say. And the whole notion of building information management has uh, come to the forefront for me because I was introduced to that back in 2006 when I was working in the U.S. in the Washington, D.C. area. And here we are many years later. As a result, uh, our university has won now, I think, about five or six uh, CanBIM awards. And we're pretty excited about that. I don't think there's any owner in Canada that's received as many and there's value in that. So that's what I do and in my day-to-day so and I'm always excited in being involved in the profession in some way or another. You know what? I would say the program that you made me feel nostalgic about it because I started my career in Canada with that program. Had I not been, you know, into that program, I wouldn't have met you. I wouldn't have understood how important BIM is and what does it mean to different sectors in our industry. So yeah, that program and everybody who delivers that program is really, really close to my heart. Like I, you know, what's interesting when you did the program that you have to do an existing building or a brand new building as part of your final existing well now for a couple of years at the request of you and others like yourself, other professionals who wanted to really kind of apply your learnings from the various courses, we actually, I created five different programs for five different building typologies that then the students do in very the integrated design, technical design of a new building, applying everything they learn in building codes, materials and methods, zoning and all that. It's almost uh, like a schematic design concept. And the feedback I've gotten uh, from the those who are considered my students, although foreign trained architects, they said it's probably the most realistic experience they have of uh, applying their skills that they've learned abroad and the courses that they've taken at Ryerson University. So I'm really excited about that. It was a little difficult to transition to that. So we took it to the next level, you might say. And it really shows how using building information modeling to deal with, with issues and challenges associated with the code, people would never imagine, how can you actually code in BIM? How do they go hand in hand? But the way they're able to illustrate, you know, a fire separation to a client by having these illustrations in a 3D model is much more simplistic than actually reverting back to a section of the code, section 3.2.5, that no one understands what that means except the code consultant. In this particular case, these program trained architects are really able to understand the principles behind and the importance of uh, applying a building code like the one in Ontario, the OBC that we have. And this is a shout out to David Hine. I don't know if you know, I did work with him for some time. I did work him for about five or six weeks just right after the program. And um, he has been one inspiration. He gave me references for my first job here in Canada. He's an absolute favorite. Um, we should bring him to the podcast sometime. There uh, you go. And ask him how BIM works with codes and vice versa. I have a demonstration for him. So now, you know, Revit and all other programs have developed enough generative design that you can calculate the exits that this is the maximum distance to exit. So all those things, the limiting distances can be calculated. The surface areas can be calculated. Openings, number of openings, surface areas can be calculated. Put it on an OBC. We recently in DevWise, we have created a parametric family that reflects the OBC matrix. So OBC matrix table. Really? Schedule that reads the information inside whatever building we are designing, and it will give you, there are some things that we have to put in. So let's say for the code. So are you saying that it populates those sections of that matrix? Wow. 
Yeah, so that, see, I think you're actually touching on a point, I think, where people are forgetting. Because many years ago, many architects and engineers and people in the construction industry thought that the whole digital transformation in the AEC industry was a fad by using softwares like ArchiCAD or Revit or others like that, right? When in fact, I used to say to people in 2010, when I did my first large analysis using uh, 3D digital technologies, in this case, we used Revit at the time. I'm not promoting Revit. I'm just saying that's what we used. Uh, made such a difference for our leadership at our university to really understand the fact that you're using it to now connect to something that's a critical tool as part of the permitting process when you submit documents and tied back to your 3D model, it demonstrates the power of integrating all, all the information, right? The I in BIM, all that information, such as the building code matrix. I mean, that's brilliant. I, I think more people should do that. And I think we as architects sometimes forget we don't leverage our tools as well as we should. That is a given. It's like the car that you buy, the brand new fancy car. It has all these bells and whistles, but you only rely on those three stations in the radio and some of the features and the rest you forget and you discover them years later when in fact you should be using the value of what that's giving you. So we forget that, right? Right. Yeah. Similarly with the smartphones, like do we use them to full capacity? I don't think so. My husband has like iPhone 12 for like a year and a half now. He doesn't know how to do laser scanning See, with it. I said, smartphone is not a smartphone unless the person using it is a using it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, so you talked about York University, and I know that you've led this process of digital transformation and BIM implementation at York University as their facilities director. Can you take us through the journey? How did you start with it? What were your biggest challenges? And I might just cut you somewhere to ask more questions. Sure. You know what? I'm lucky that uh, at the very early stages, um, when I introduced the, the idea of going into a 3D environment, was never as a tool just to assist architects. But it, I, the way I presented it to everyone was a tool for ourselves to illustrate, demonstrate, analyze information that we can then convey to our internal clientele, like a dean of a faculty, the chair of a research enterprise, let's say. And we can then begin to visualize that information in a 3D environment, as opposed to doing a, a SketchUp model at the time, which would not have any intelligence, we were now able to manipulate the space almost instantly in a discussion in a meeting, for example. So it served us really well by first starting to use it as a visualizing tool. Then it was the information of integrating building systems and so on. So it's taken us, I would say, now we're going into our 11th year and probably our fourth version of a building information modeling execution plan. That's where we're at now. And we've almost updated it every other year now since we created created one back in 2012-13 is when we created our formal BIM execution plan. And since then, we've updated it to reflect the delivery methodology, whether it's construction management or stipulated sum, for example. And so with that, that journey has been where we tried small projects first, non risky projects. So we did a major analysis of a complex that has 85,000 square meters, roughly, or about 850,000 square feet, four buildings sitting on a podium from the 1960s. And we did analysis, solar analysis, we did climate analysis, spatial analysis, all in this one uh, 3D uh, BIM model that we did back in 2010 and 11, believe it or not. And that's how we started with that. And there was no formal instruments um, 
um, of uh, sort of legal instruments uh, of service that architects are required to produce for permitting and so on. So there was no legal ramifications should something fail. And there was concerns by some Canadian architects that we invited. Well, what's the legality of the model? When I, in fact, I kept saying this is a study, it's an analysis. And a US-based company had no questions about it. And they helped us to basically do the work because they got hired. So that was the one project. The second project that we did was a literally a 35 square meter uh, pavilion, two of them for a robotics uh, researcher. And we designed it in-house. We kind of engineered it in-house. And then we gave the model to a fabricator in Grimsby, Ontario. And uh, they basically used that model to then do their final shop drawings and fabricate the structures on site, brought it on a flatbed, installed it on campus. And we won an innovation award from the BIM Mobile BIM Institute of the United States for first prize for innovation uh, in using this fabrication techniques. So, and I was considered the architect of record at the time, you know, so I was really happy about that. So those were two, I think, catalyst projects that then led a rise to pursuing major renovations or new construction. Uh, and thereafter, obviously, we did a uh, about a 15,600 square meter new engineering building that we did everything from beginning to end in BIM, from planning to through design, through construction for the purpose of operations and maintenance. And we set that kind of benchmark, that pin, I would say, in this journey back in 2012, 2013, I would say. And since then, you know, we don't even think about it anymore. It's a BIM execution plan, gets attached to an RFP, to the consultant's uh, selection or to the contractor, or if there's a partnership like an integrated project delivery, they already know it. And now it's just a, a normal practice for our institution. And I think we recently got some feedback from a, a mid-sized construction company well-respected that does institutional work and said that it's the most incredible experience they've had because they've never had to do a, such an integrated construction delivery for a stipulated sum project, believe it or not, using BIM to the degree that in which they're doing. And the lessons learned, the collaboration between sub-trades and all of that has been exceptional for them. And they believe they've definitely saved time, money, issues on site and all that. So that's where we are today. That's where we were then. And in between, we've done probably now close to almost, I would say, a million square feet or 100,000 square meters in buildings. We're in, our, I think, six major capital new construction in a fully integrated BIM process. And we did one major interior renovations where we renovated roughly about uh, six, 7,000 square meters, where we did 3D scanning as well. We did that four years ago. So we, you know, so we've gone now through the gamut. Now we're actually trying to really now formalize all of this, working with our prevent maintenance uh, folks and manager in our university to now translate all that data and information for the purpose of maintaining and operating our building. So that's where we're now focusing. We've done that. Now that's our future. And the next layer we're adding is the whole sustainable green um, layer, you might say, about operating our buildings to reduce our carbon footprint in our buildings, in our campus in the near future. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on this year. And I, I wouldn't be surprised that we will look at a 3D environment in some way to help us move forward in that area. Okay, that is great. There are two takeaways from this whole story that you've just told me. One, we do need a, we do need the BIM process to be initiated by the owner, which I have been talking to almost everybody that I meet that, you know, when people say that, oh, we don't get paid enough to work in BIM. I always say when the big boss says everybody works. So when the owner demands, then everybody follows because they're the ones who are going to be signing the checks. They're the ones who are going to be 
awarding the projects. So the biggest onus of digital transformation lies with the with the owners. And that means that on the owner's side, we do need to have somebody who's aware of the process and who understands the benefit. Not every owner can have Patrick Saavedra on their... You know what? You're, you're absolutely... You need a champion. You need a champion, a sponsor who will support, who will work through that process. I got lucky that I had an assistant vice president who understood the value of integration and collaboration because he was trained in the Navy. And when you're in a ship at sea, as he used to say, you everything has to work together, right? And this is, and that's how it is for us now in our facility services at the university. So you're right. I think we as owners, as the world becomes, you know, this IoT of things, Internet of Things, more and more relevant for everything that we do, I, I think we can't avoid it. There's value at the planning stage, at the design stage, at the construction stage, at the operation stage. But clients and owners uh, should always think about the end in mind as they start. Like what is it that you want to achieve at the end and for what purpose that then you begin to articulate the documentation that sets you know the tone for everyone before then and maybe that's the problem with some owners is they, they still trying to understand the value and their kind of antiquated systems that they may have in, in their infrastructure that doesn't allow them to lead forward that's why i was i've been asked to speak to a number of entities both provincial level other institutions like hospitals and so on and i've always said get a small project use it as a pilot work through your legal department, your procurement department, your finance department, bring your IT department, everyone who's involved to understand this. Once you go through that together, you'll understand the value, therefore then add the next set of layers thereafter. But it does mean you begin with the end in mind. And I would say to my colleagues who maybe poo-poo the idea, like it's more cumbersome or it's more involved, therefore we should get paid more. Well, we like to think we pay very fair in the industry and we account for any additional costs that's required to work in this environment for the purpose of operations and maintenance, obviously, because then you have to set up your models in a certain way. It's not just a design tool anymore or a technical design tool. Then we recognize the value. And, and believe it or not, I think most owners are willing to accept whatever the fees are. We've never argued with our consultants about fees when they actually do the work for us in a graded a BIM environment. Not at all. Never. Okay. Now you talked about the end result or the goals, and you also talked about having a champion. Now, how did you recognize your goals? Did you have like an in-house BIM team, a BIM expert? And what exactly your goals were and how did you like get to a, like, okay, out of these 10 things that I can get from this process, these three things, because of course you cannot get all 10 things at the same time. These are the first three things we're going to be targeting. So how did you get to that process? Again, I was lucky that I was working for an integrated, large US-based company, architectural design engineering company in 2006, where I already was introduced to the value of working in an integrated way. At the time, I was using it for, believe it or not, urban design and planning projects using Revit at the time, 2006 through 2009. Okay. Most people were just only starting to think about using it for buildings, not even mechanical, electrical, or structural. So at that point, I knew the value for us to assess land, land developments, take the data and information that we can in terms of you know zoning, volumes, and so on. All the kind of very simple 3D stuff. So I already saw the value in that. But when, uh, and then obviously as, as my career progressed in the US and we did more work in an integrated way with multiple disciplines, when I transitioned back to Toronto and I was happy to be back to Toronto and took the position initially uh, with Sorry, there you go. That's my little puppy. There's uh, someone's cooking and the uh, the smoke alarm went off. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, and there she is going. She's giving us the notice that the alarm is on, but I think she's going to stop soon. <laughs> that's, that's perfectly okay. We love pets. Yes. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll introduce you to her afterwards. But uh, for me, when I move back to the client side, as opposed to the private uh, consulting part and recognize some of the antiquity uh, process, if you can say that, if I can say that correctly, but antiquated kind of processes and record keeping and still sharing 2D information to clients to make decisions. I knew at that point that we had to leap forward very, very, very quickly because, you know, a scientist who works in biology is focused on something very specific. They don't, may not understand uh, a building section, a building floor plan and so on. So that's why initially I started with the idea, let's do all our work in a 3D environment. At that point, my team recognized that they themselves wanted to upgrade their skills. And so they said, well, in what software? And I said, well, there's a lot of software out there. And we just happened to migrate into Rabbit because Autodesk has been a provider of AutoCAD for, for the university for like 30 years. So it was a natural kind of transition. And so with their learning and this new software, I saw more and more of their work being presented to our clientele in a 3D environment, making decisions quicker, simpler, easier. So that was the impetus, I think, that I saw value. From there, we layered on the next level, which would be more technical kind of 3D environment. And so slowly but surely, we went from 2010 to 2013 from doing a 35 square meter little standalone pavilion, very low risk to, you know, $100 million, you know, very complex engineering science building. And, and so that's how the kind of the transition happened. And at that point, through every step of the way, folks recognized what they were seeing what they were discovering and supported the journey as we kept going on. And I have to tell you, uh, you know, our team of about 35, 40 people at the time, everyone was enamored by the whole idea of upgrading themselves, discovering this, being able to convey to their clients uh, much easier and simpler, like I said. And that's how I've got the support from my team, from higher up, the leadership of the university and so on. And they were surprised that we were doing all this work internally because they thought we were hiring consult externally to do this when we were doing it internally. Wow. And we could turn around something that would have taken us to procure the services of an architect, you know, go through that whole process, get work with their schedule, maybe get something back in six weeks when we could have done it. We did it in two weeks. Wow. So, and that's how all this happened. Okay. So that means that now when York University sends out an RFP, it has their created BIM execution plan or the standards, digital delivery standards. Did you guys have any kind of reference for that how these standards should be created? Because I know the standards that I know of were created um, after like 2012, 2013 or around that time. So did you guys have any precedents? Yes, yes. So to be fair, you know, just like we learned from others, we have shared all our information with others as well. We're happy to do so because the more we share, the more we learn ourselves and discover and get back. As they say, you know, if you share, you get uh, in return tenfold sometimes, right? So we at the time were struggling how to create a BIM execution plan. So we looked at the Penn State BIM execution plan at the time and we used that as our basis. And then we obviously customized it to the York University, Ontario scenario in Toronto area, accordingly, knowing, you know, some of the legalities that occurs in this part of the world. And that's how we are organized and created our BIM execution plan. Thereafter, you know, we kept upgrading more and more from the things we learned through the various projects. Obviously, the other one that we did use as a resource for then I would say maybe for something we did about four years ago is the Institute of BIM Canada, you know, a division of 
uh, Smart Buildings Canada, they had put together a manual for the country for the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. And by the way, I'm happy to say that the cover of that manual happens to be our building, uh, our engineering building that won the award that year for the best in BIM. And uh, we shared a lot of our documents with IBC in Ottawa. They used a lot, some of the information. And in return, we started to use some of their documentation, like the BIM element table, for example, something that we didn't want to recreate because that's a major list. And so we basically edit accordingly and use that as a template for now until we discover something better, to be honest with you. So we've used resources from elsewhere. We've created our own, we've given back, and we've gone back in other ways. And we've learned through that process, you know. So, and, oh, and the other thing is, I would say every time we get a, an institution, a government department calling us and they're asking all sorts of questions, you know, if a flag goes up and says, oh, we got to address that in our BIM execution plan because it's not well articulated. And so that's how we've also learned because sometimes different owners are experiencing different issues across the country such that, you know, it might apply directly to us or indirectly. So we learned from that and we added. So we made two major statements in the very first page of a BIM execution plan, for example, from this discovery. We own the model, you own the model. We own the model jointly, whether you're a contractor or whether you're an architect or an engineer. So there's no question that you find it in the middle of the document or at the end. First page, second paragraph, we own it jointly. We share information. We share uh, uh, all of it. And so that way there's no discussion after the fact, you know? So you're right. At the very early of the RFPs, uh, we, because we usually do a two-stage, our request for qualifications. So we make it known there that this is going to be a fully executed BIM exercise project. And then we, when we shortlist them, we give them the very detailed three or four page synopsis plus the BIM execution plan to the shortlisted teams accordingly. So now they move to the next stage and so on. And, and the level of information and detail that they get from us regarding the BIM deliverables. Oh, that is amazing. And this is so interesting. I'm just forgetting we have to move to our next section, which is impossible questionnaire. And I don't want to break the momentum we've built here, but let's quickly add a little bit more fun to this already a lot of fun discussion. In Impossible Questionnaire, I am going to ask you three questions. Sure. They are, are industry related. And just to be fair, um, the only way I know the answers to this question is because we have researched them. So if we wouldn't have researched them, we would not have known these answers. So don't feel Perhaps bad. Perhaps maybe I researched them too. So I know the uh, answers. Okay, let's <laughs> see. Let's see. So, okay. So you have heard about common data environment. We use common data environment for our BIM process all the time. There is a new concept called IDE or integrated data environment. What is the difference between a common data environment and an integrated data environment? That's a good question for you to tell me because uh, I don't know it enough to be honest with you. Okay. So I am going oh, you to- you stumped me on that one for sure. Uh, okay. So It seems so like I should have a, a degree in computer science or something or some technology like that to answer such a question. <laughs> okay. I, I will tell you, I'll tell you a very layman or like something very common, something I can ex maybe explain to my husband also. So common data environment is in which we have one platform to exchange the data, right? So, yeah. Right. Whereas an integrated data environment is where the data is all integrated into. It's not like you don't have different points to communicate, but everything is on the whole data is in one place. And there's a 
layer of communication or layer of collaboration on top of it. So it is a concept that is moving from the software IT world and it is soon coming to to our industry. And uh, eventually this is going to move. What I'm seeing is to more like blockchain and all the NFT space that we are looking. It sounds to me, if I can interrupt for a second, that IDE, right? Yes. To me, it sounds like when you have a fully functioning design team, they work in an IDE environment. If you really think about it, one single model, right? That we're all working in, as opposed to the structural engineer works over there, the architect works over there, and they sometimes overlap and synchronize these models. But no, we build the model from the scratch together, right? In one environment. I guess that's maybe my analogy, perhaps a little bit. It has less to do with the model, more to do with the data. Sorry. Yes, I agree. It's maybe the model is the wrong use of the term, but you're right, the data that's in there. Yes. Okay. So it's more like integrating data. And actually, IDE is very, very important if we actually want to create a true digital twin, because we cannot have a light in this room working without the ceiling, right? We do need a host and we, and, and that light cannot work without the circuits. It cannot work without, if this is an, a smart light, it cannot work without the smart sensors. So when this whole data is integrated and it's in a, in a digital environment, it's an integrated data environment. Gotcha. Uh, Thank you. Uh, okay. So the next question is, let me go a little easy on you this time. Okay. What is the minimum allowable length of bearing for wood floor joists on masonry? What is the load minimum, bearing? Minimum allowable length of bearing for wood floor joists on masonry. Okay. So if I understand that correctly, I would say at minimum 150 millimeters. Am I off? You are way off. (laughs) Minimum allowable length of the wood floor joist on masonry. So if the joists were connecting on the masonry, what is the minimum bearing those joists have to have on it? So it's 40 millimeters. 40. Yes. That's very little when you think about it. So I was I was I was thinking more like an engineer, I guess, in this response. You know what <laughs> they say? They have a different factor of three in this case, or a factor of four, because 160 millimeters would have been a factor of four almost at uh, 40 millimeters. Yes. So the minimum is 40 millimeters? Yes, four centimeters. That I'll remember that when the engineer reviews my next design. Yeah, it is. And this is according to Ontario Building Code. The minimum. Yes. It shall not be less than 40 millimeters. And that, that depend on the depth of that uh, joist. Do you want me to send you the code reference? Yes. Okay, I will. I'm send curious you. now because uh, I would think that that would be a function also of the depth of the joist because I cannot imagine that a, what we refer to as a two by eight, two by twelve would have a minimum allowable forty millimeters. Although the code may say that, it doesn't seem to me from a just a safety perspective that so maybe there's a correlation of some kind. You know, maybe I will send you the code reference. And now when you're saying because these questions like we have like whole library of questions yeah and just to confirm i copied and i pasted this on google to search it right away it does say not less than 40 millimeters but i will send you the code reference please okay so the last question what is the grade of concrete generally not used in reinforced concrete m20 m20 m40 m15 okay so there's 10 15 20 and 40 you said right if i remember correctly not used i would think at minimum that the m 10 is probably the one I'm thinking of. You're right. I think that was an easy one. I said, I'll give you a little easy one. <laughs> okay. I haven't reviewed some concrete specs in the in the recent past. So, so okay. I figured logic told me, you know, which one is. the minimum one. 
Okay. So I think we are on to the last part of our podcast. And this actually focuses on what I call it is a rose button thorn. So being somebody who I look up to and a lot of fellow, like a lot of my colleagues, they look at York University and the team at York University as a pioneer in driving this BIM process within the owner's sector. What are your rose button thorns? So rose being the benefit of the today, bud is the benefit that you're seeing for tomorrow and thorn. So your challenges or side. What do you think is the biggest thorn in your way? Well, at least in, in my personal experience right now is that the leader, some of the leadership in the division, folks are very new and they have not been in an environment where we're using digital technologies to the degree that which we want to continue to. That would, uh, what is what I would say is kind of a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the next challenge will be the, the data management for sure. Data management, managing the, these models, the data that's within them, ensuring that they're properly being utilized by our operations and maintenance folks. Believe it or not, six years ago, I already created a manager's position for a BIM digital manager at the time. We still haven't hired that person. And that's, I think, the challenge for me and for us at the, at the university or any owner for that matter. You need someone like that. When you ask me about how I learned, one university in middle of the state of Michigan, Western Michigan, I believe it is, University of Michigan, Western Michigan University, they had embarked a few years before we did, all for the purpose of operations and maintenance. So they hired three digital experts to help the operations and maintenance folks and hired less plumbers, less electricians, because they realized they needed to mine the data for operations and purposes. So they said they reduced their their resources in one area and increased it in another, but the delta was an improvement for them in terms of operations and maintenance. And I think that's our challenge as well in Canada and Ontario and at our university and other similar universities is getting the support by the senior management of the university, understanding the value of perhaps putting a position, creating a position within facility services that helps the integration of different data that are coming from building automation systems and all sorts of other areas and integrating these and translating them from planning design to operations and maintenance, obviously. I think that's the biggest challenge. For us, you know, that I would say so that the biggest thorn is not having the financial resources immediately available to create that position that will help us at large. However, one thing I've learned is that the more data I can demonstrate or illustrate to the senior management of the value that comes with perhaps the work that we do, then they're willing to support because data and information is power, they say, right? So the more I can share that, the more they're willing to support initiatives that we undertake. So I'm interested in getting this data and you know, using it for improving our and optimizing definitely our processes and procedures as a university. So right now I would say our thorn is people who don't believe in it. People who are still skeptics after many years and not having the financial resources to sort of advance things, I would say. The benefits or the, you said the bud, right? I think that's, that's the rose. What the rose. The benefits. I think you did outline it, but let's reiterate that for to hammer it even further. So the rose is your benefits that you're getting from your process today and the but the benefits you're looking at for tomorrow yeah i think the benefits uh, for today is obvious we've seen major improvements in teams collaborating better there appears to be less issues i mean right now we haven't this is anecdotal that we have not like recorded the the, the fewer less fewer change orders let's say but when i'm hearing directly from the contractor themselves the consultants themselves how much it's improved their processes i know there's benefit and i think there's value in that and maybe it's not quantified but we've had less budget overruns as 
a result. So I think that's where the benefit is. And decision-making very quickly, we had a clientele internal to the university who made decisions within two hours that would have taken a month to make decisions, all because we did basically a, a AR and VR uh, experience with them at the architect's office. And we made decisions in certain spots that we were having a hard time convincing them to go in a certain way. When they saw it visually and they walked through this space virtually, decisions were made in two hours, to be honest with you. And we've been trying for months now. So I see that as you know, improving our roles. Exactly. I, I think our operations and maintenance is going to be the biggest benefit in the future. And they know it. They've recognized that. I'm lucky that I'm working with an individual who came from the healthcare industry, one of the major healthcare industry conglomerate, let's call it that, in Canada, here in Toronto. And as a result, he is all for this kind of integration and digitization of our environment to improve our processes and procedures and optimization in our day-to-day -day work. Um, so he's all excited and 100% support, 150% support. So that's where I see the benefit is really coming in the very near future, I would say in the next two to three years, for sure, as we've embarked on all this. Yes. Okay, perfect. So I think with this, I mean, as much as I hate to, we <laughs> have to end this podcast. I I always love talking to you, getting the wisdom mantras from you, but this is all for today. Understood. Understood. We can't continue to talk for the rest of the day. I'm sure your family's waiting and so is mine. And you heard the alarm go up because the there's dinner starting to be prepared i think in the background so and i can smell it too so chat night's been oh. a pleasure like always thank you so much patrick it has been a total pleasure and you're not you're not just being spared like this i'm bringing you back for another episode and more chat sessions all right and i'll be i'm going to do some more uh training in, in my wikipedia so i'll be ready for those questions okay oh okay okay, <laughs> okay. all the best have a great weekend oh, yeah thank, thank you. you bye bye, bye, -bye.